Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You're lying in bed at night and you hear a noise downstairs. Is there someone in your house? And if there is, do you know what to do? While we like to think we'd rise to the occasion and readily dispatch with the bad guys, my guest today argues that without preparation and training, you're likely to flounder and that you should have put more thought into how to keep the invader out of your house in the first place. His name is Dave Young, and he's a security expert and the author of How to Defend Your Family and Home, Outsmart an Invader, Secure Your Home, Prevent a Burglary, and Protect Your Loved Ones from Any Threat. We begin a conversation with how Dave got involved with security training, the intensive field research he did for his book, and the basic equation criminals use in deciding whether or not to make your house a target. We then delve into how to tweak that equation to your favor, beginning with casing your house like a criminal would. We go over the vulnerabilities to look for as you walk the perimeter of your property and the actionable changes you can make to deter would-be home invaders. Dave then walks you through what to do if someone does invade your home, including the criteria to use in picking a place to hide, choosing a weapon to fight back, and selecting an engagement point to confront the intruder. We also get into the importance of firearm training if you decide to own a gun for self-defense. And we end our conversation with the oft-overlooked part of surviving a home invasion, the months and years of psychological and judicial aftermath. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash homeinvasion. All right, Dave Young, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. So a couple years ago, you published a book, How to Defend Your Family and Home. It's about home security, self-defense, how to protect yourself from home invasion burglaries. But before we talk about that, let's talk about your background. You have a career, you created a career for yourself doing uh, self-defense and being a security consultant. How did that happen? Well, you know, I've been actually pretty blessed looking at it now, going back and looking at it then. But when it was actually happening, I probably didn't think it was too much of a blessing. I grew up on the opposite side of the tracks, as most people say. You know, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. We moved from Brooklyn to Hialeah, Florida. When I was six, I come back from my first day of school and my dad left. So my mom raised my brother and I, and we, you know, lived off food stamps. My mom got involved in drugs at a very young age. She died at a young age of 36 from a brain hemorrhage. So I grew up in the gangs. You know, if you don't like your house, you go out and you find another home you feel safe in. So all the things they tell you not to do, I I did some of them, but I was blessed enough to not get too far off the guided path. And, you know, I became a corrections officer, a police officer first. Then I had 10 years active duty in the Marine Corps. I had six years in the reserves, several deployment tours during that time. And uh, I guess the same reason most people get into the self-defense or security or police field is, you know, you want to help yourself to never feel the way you did when you were younger. And you realize that there's a lot of people out there that are in those same situations that don't know where to go for help. So I think that was a decision I made at a young age that when it came time and, you know, experiences what you get five minutes after you have it, I think you can use a lot of life experiences to really be positive, you know, stories for others that are in the same similar situations. And, and a lot of your work, you know, you do teach self-defense, but a lot of your work is consulting companies, organizations on how to prevent conflict before it even happens. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have over 30 plus years of training and experience as a corrections officer, police officer, Marine. And right when I got out of the Marine Corps from active duty, I didn't retire. I got out of 10 years active duty as a staff sergeant. I took over as director of training for several companies in the non-lethal weapons industry. And then that just grew into not only training police, law enforcement, and military. I was blessed to start a company, co-found a company with one of my mentors, Gary Klugowitz. And we started a company called Vistalar. And, you know, we cover the entire spectrum of human conflict from that first word that's spoken, which is where conflict is usually, 
you know, given birth at, all the way up to the weapons that you use to defend yourself. So about five years ago, when that book first became an idea, I got approached by a company to write a book. They saw some videos I did on YouTube on surviving a home invasion, talking about the aftermath. Um, so I wanted to do some research. So I, you know, we looked at like a hundred different home invasion situations and cases. And most of them, the people that were in the house didn't survive those things. You know, you can always look at statistics from the uh, FBI Uniform Crime Report or the National Bureau of Criminal Statistics and, you know, what's a robbery, what's a burglary, what's a home invasion. And, you know, I saw that home invasions took on three different, you know, platforms. You're either sleeping in your home, get up in the middle of the night to get something to drink, and you find out that somebody's in your home and they don't want to leave and they take you hostage. You have other family members there that just gets, you know, nastier. Or you come home early from a vacation and find out that there's somebody already in your home. Or the worst one is you've had somebody case in your home and other houses on the street, and you've been blind on what to look for, how to identify it. Could it happen to me? Because, you know, most people in I've found in the United States they live in the world that it won't happen to me. You know, one of my mentors, Coach Bob Lindsay, said you can be an if-then thinker or a when-then thinker. Well, I'd rather be a when-then thinker because if-then thinkers don't get a chance to think too far along down the pike. So it's not a question of if it will happen to you. It's a question of when. And do you want to be ready for it? So all these situations with home invasions took on a different, a different direction. The bottom line is if you prepare for it from the very beginning, all the way to the end, then you'll be better prepared no matter how it happens. But if you live in the world that it won't happen to me, some people think throwing a lock on their door or, you know, uh, turning the porch lights off in the daytime, those are all little things you can do. But if someone's really casing your house, you should have some strategies to identify it. So that's what we focused on after we interviewed all those people. So it took a whole year to gather the information. And then when we wrote the book, we wanted it to be 10 chapters specifically focused on what to do before it happens, what kind of visual deterrence, physical deterrence, what locks are better than this, deadbolts. You know, I was pretty lucky earlier in my career to host a show for National Geographic called The Crash Test Human. Definitely not something you put in a resume, but we got to break through doors and I got to show where hinges and deadbolts and door frames and how they interact with each other. And that just added to the information that we can provide for, you know, how do you prepare for someone who's breaking into your home where it's supposed to be the last great safe place in America is your home. Well, let's talk about that. I want to go back to that point about home invasions and burglaries. How how does the police differentiate between the two or do they? Well, some do and some don't. You know, the burglary is a person breaks into your home with the intent to steal and they steal and they leave. And then it could be robbery with assault if there's people home. And I view as anyone that comes into my home for whatever reason, if it's not a wanted guest, then, you know, it's an invasion. Now, whether you didn't intend to do that in your heart, the result is I'm experiencing that with me and my family here. And if you have a family, it's just as it's probably scarier than if you're by yourself. You know, you you always hear, or I always hear those Monday morning quarterbacks, oh, I'd shoot them. But yet they keep their gun in a safe and they don't have any access to it. Or, you know, we can have this conversation for years where most people, you know, have a firearm for the emotional security it, it provides, like a teddy bear when you're a kid, rather than the physical protection it's supposed to serve you when your life depends on it the most. 
So I, I experienced one. You know, I was 14 years old. We were living in government housing. My brother was playing in the other room. My mom, unfortunately, was doing drugs in the back room. The door bursts open. Two guys run in the house with their faces covered with pistols in their hand, grab us by our hair, drag us in down the hallway, kick my mother in the face, have his face down on the floor, point a gun to our head, ask him where the money's at. And they actually, the knuckleheads broke into the wrong home. They should have broke into the apartment next to us. They were looking for drugs. And a, and a money of stash that was supposed to be at this location. When you're 14, you don't do nothing but put your nose in the rug and, you know, cry and pray softly and loudly and, you know, wet yourself. So, you know, that's not a, a plan to have for everybody. Luckily, they um, started yelling at each other. They said this was the wrong house. They ran out the door and left. My mother couldn't pick up the phone and call the cops because she had drugs in the house. So we picked up the pieces and, you know, I don't think I slept well until I left that apartment building when I was, you know, 17. So I think people want to know what to do to keep themselves safe. But there's a lot of people that are afraid to know. And I think that if you take the necessary steps and precautions, you first of all, keep yourself emotionally safe because I sleep very well in my home. You know, my wife and I have a little joke that if she wakes up and says, can you get me some water? I don't wake up. But if she says, hey, I heard a noise, I'm awake before she is. So I have a peace of mind that I'm not worried about these things. Could they happen? Yes. But if they are, you're prepared for them. I think when we wrote the book, it was to give people a plan. And I don't think there is a, a separation between what determines whether it's a home invasion or a burglary. The fact is, if there's unwanted people in your home, you don't want them there. Uh, are there some types of homes or neighborhoods that are more likely to get broken into than others? I don't think there's a certain neighborhood or a certain house. I think all houses have a certain level of vulnerability. And if you can identify what that is and do some things with landscaping and lights and locks and signs and create a visual deterrent, you, you, there's, there's a bad guy equation. And it's called, uh, you know, if you raise their effort and lower the reward, you discourage the crime. But if you lower their effort and increase the reward, you encourage the crime. So I think if you look at that equation, look at your own home right now, there's some general things you could probably do to take you off that, I want to break into that house list, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And we'll get into some of these, these uh, things, these deterrents you, you talk about in the book, a few of them. But before we do, I want to do some more little analysis, kind of give us an idea of, uh, of home invasions, what they look like. In your research, like when do home invasions usually occur? Are they usually at night, during the day? What have you found? Well, the typical home invasion is usually done at night when there's less people in the front of the neighborhood to watch the person come up to the home, whether it's uh, they're driving a car or they're popping the hood in front of your home. Uh, and they're usually done in teams, two or more. I didn't see any research when it was done by just one person. Usually there was one that created a distraction at the front door. If you let them in the home, that's great. Then they can't, another person came in the back of the home. You know, very few in the movies, like where they're going to kick the front door open when the whole family's watching TV or eating in the kitchen. People that commit crimes don't want to get caught. So in their mind, they're going to do this thing where there's the least amount of witnesses that are in the area to watch it take place. All right. That makes sense. Um, all right. So let's talk about what criminals are looking for. So you talk about that, that equation. They're looking for something that's, that's an easy target where they won't get caught. And so one thing you recommend when you're sort of, when a person's beginning their own assessment of their, their home and family security is to basically case your house like a criminal 
and and look for weaknesses in your house. So let's put on our criminal cap here. Like, what are we looking for? What are you looking for in a house for vulnerabilities and weaknesses? Well, I think the first thing is you start with the outside of your home and you identify blind spots and shadows. The way to do this is have a friend or spouse stand at the front door in the door frame looking out of the house and you stand behind certain trees and bushes and I guess figures that you have in your in your yard and ask the person, can they see you? And when you start finding places that people can see you, but you can't see them, you identify blind spots. If you walk around the whole perimeter of your home, if you're living in a home, you know, I do the perimeter walk twice a month. When we first moved into the neighborhood, in the backyard, there was a tree, not in our backyard, but in another yard. But if you stood behind that tree, you could see right into our, our shower. There was also cigarette buds, some pizza crusts, some beer cans that were fresh that you could tell somebody is standing there watching something. So to to first walk around your property and see if you can identify any of these blind spots and shadows. If there's bushes, trim them and thin them. Try to keep the bushes away from the home as possible. Thin them out, put the lights behind them. You want to create a place that if someone is on your yard, it would be seen by the neighbors, not only the people in the house, because that is a visual deterrent. Signs are visual deterrents. When you do the perimeter on the outside of the home, you want a person to see that it's protected by a security company or a dog before they decide to come on the property. You know, if you're riding a bike in the neighborhood and you're looking at three houses and you see one house doesn't have anything, one house has a sign on the front yard that says, you know, secured by ADT, and another one has a sign in the yard saying, beware of dog. Which house would you want to look at a little bit more closely? Probably the one that doesn't have anything. So there is a certain value for a visual deterrent. Once you get the visual deterrents in place, then look at what's in your house and what kind of shadows are your lights creating. You know, most people think of a square, and at the corner of each square, they put two lights that branch out but they don't realize that they're creating blind spots where someone can walk in from the street all the way up to your house and not be seen at night. So you want to crisscross your lights. You want to possibly have some lights shining on the corners of the house, not away from the corners of the house. So light positioning plays an important role. So you want signs, you want lights, you want to trim the bushes, you want to have a clean yard. And you know, and don't do something silly like put beware of dog and don't have a dog dish or even a chain on the tree because people, you know, Bad guys have a certain level of intelligence and you want to create a visual deterrent that is going to take some effort when you make the decision to go into that home to step on the property first. When you're also walking around your home, you want to open up the back doors. I open up the back doors and take my thumb and run it along the strike plate to see if there's any cuts or wedges in it from a screwdriver. If there are any marks, you know, you can cover it with clear nail polish and then go back and check and see if there's any more tool marks on it. Most of the time, people will try to break into your house without getting caught before they decide to burst in the house. Check the screens, you know, latches and locks. Do you have drapes? You know, it's, it's kind of like you spend a lot of money buying some really cool things, leave it on the backseat of your car when it'd be safe from the trunk so it couldn't be seen. So you want drapes or blinds on your windows so if someone was standing outside, they couldn't see what you had in the home. You want to reduce the curiosity. You want to take away any mental images of temptation that, hey, I want that, or I don't know what that is. I want to learn more about it. 
So you want to really control what a person sees when they look at your home. You know, during the daytime, I want them to see a clean house. I want them to see, you know, signs, little stickers on the window. And I want to have my windows closed so they can't see what's on the other side. We know now in today's society, a lot more people are staying home. So are burglaries happening? They're probably not happening as many times now as they were, you know, before this same time last year. But nonetheless, people get restless, you know, whenever people lose food, water, shelter, clothing, or an ear to listen to, they go out and take it from somewhere else. So that first thing you want to do is create that visual deterrent. And then as you get closer to the house, you're looking for any signs of forced entry or breakage into the home, screens, latch locks, footprints around the beds near the windows. You know, um, there's some things you can do by sprinkling a little baking soda or talcum powder on the ledge. You know, you'll even see if birds are, are standing on there. There's just little things you can do to create a visual deterrent that raise that effort and lower that reward on the outside of the home. And signs and posters and lights are the best options to have. Well, let's talk about home security and security security systems in particular. And you said there's there's a role for that. But I, you, to say the statistic, like a lot of homes today, like very few of them or very few homes have home security systems in place. Security systems are designed to give you a particular level of comfort within your budget. Most people never think about going out and getting a, a security alarm until their house is broken into or their neighbor's house is broken into. That's why you'll notice as soon as you get your house broken into, you'll be called by all kinds of security companies. Because once that hits a, a public record in the neighborhood, that's how they get their leads from a lot, a lot of places. So, you know, for me, myself, I look at security as layers. And the more layers you have of security, starting off with visual, then possibly auditorial, then physical, those give you layers of, of, of deterrence. Security, physical security starts with signs. And then I, I would have something that gives me an alert or a detection that someone's breached a door or a window. Whether you're away, I get an alert on my phone. If I'm home, I hear the alert you know, from my phone near the bed, but I have a security system and it just gives me a certain level of, of safety. And I sleep a little bit better at night because it's something else listening for me and watching for me while I'm sleeping. That's how I would look at security systems. What are your thoughts about security cameras like the ring doorbell camera? Oh, they're great. Yeah. Anything that gives you a visual identifier of who was on your property is priceless because, you know, cameras record the event to give the clues to the police to go out and catch the person that looks like the person who broke into your home. Without the visual, I, I have you know video surveillance, and I'm not bashful with letting people know by signs on the property that we have you know video surveillance on the premise. Right. So again, you're just it's another layer of, layer of deterrence, and even if even if it doesn't deter them, it allows you to get evidence to prosecute if you need to do that. Yeah, because anything that you're going to have for a security system is only going to add to your case. It's just going to help provide more evidence that they were there, whether it's a full facial image or a partial, especially if they can match prints. You're just doing whatever you can as a homeowner to provide additional evidence to the police. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right, so let's talk about let's kind of do a re- recap of what we've talked about so far. So your your main priority to prevent home invasions just make your house a harder target, and that's basically the it sounds like the main thing is 
okay, you can do these visual things where you say, okay, we've got uh, security, we've got dog, uh, trespassers will be arrested. That can be a deterrent. But another layer is making it hard for the criminal to hide, right? You want to make, you want basically the criminal to be seen at all times. So you can do that by adding lights at night around your house, trimming your landscape so that there really isn't a good place to hide. And then also being aware of lights inside your home as well. Another th- thing you talk about too in the book is besides these these preventative measures, these things you can do to make your house less of a target, it also requires you to be situationally aware of the people around in your neighborhood. You can't just sort of turn your, you know, you can't just focus inward. You also have to keep your eyes focused outward and see who is walking around in your neighborhood and being familiar with the people in your neighborhood as well. Yes. If you're a homeowner, I encourage you to knock on the door of your neighbors and introduce yourself and at least see who they are and what they look like. During times of extreme emergencies, you might need their assistance to call for you or come to your aid. So I introduce myself to the neighbors on the right and left side of me, behind my house, and right across the street. And over the many years of me being here, the neighbors across the street had to run into my home because somebody broke into theirs. And the elderly lady who lived off to the left of me had a burglar in her home that I was able to see lights moving on inside the house. And I was able to go in and take her out safely and call the police. So I think you want to. You want to know who's in your neighborhood, and it starts by just taking brain pictures. Uh, I run in the mornings, and now with the heat, I run at night. But when you walk out the front door, you know, don't just walk with the front door on your phone to your car, in your car, to work. Step out on the front steps and look and see what cars are parked in your in your neighborhood. Any bodies in those cars? We had a situation where. I went running one morning, and as I walked out of the front of the house and I did some stretching, I looked off to the right, and they were just building up some homes. There was a car parked in the back, and as I looked at the car, I realized that there was a body slumped over, and the guy went into diabetic shock. But where he was parked drew alert for me because I don't want anybody, and I have a family to protect, and I don't want anybody sitting in the car case in the neighborhood or just waiting for someone to leave and then come in my home when I have my family there. So you really do want to keep your head up, keep your head up and your eyes open, your ears open to who's walking dogs, riding bikes, doing the power walks, because people who are going to case your area are going to blend in with the neighborhood first. And if you can just be friendly and wave and smile and say hello and good morning and get to know who's in your neighborhood, you could probably deter something from happening into your home. Another thing you talk about that people aren't usually, people usually don't think about when it comes to home security is being aware of what are you putting outside of your house. So like your garbage, and that's something that criminals use to figure out if you're a target or not. It starts with the mail. You know, don't let your mailbox be overflowed with mail. And then as you do your property walks, we told you about cigarette buds, but your trash, I tie my trash off in a certain way. And trash goes out at a certain day during the week. But it doesn't hurt that if you throw the tra- throw garbage in there on Monday, that if you're around your trash can on Tuesday, I just open up the lid to see if anyone's went through my trash. I always put it tie end down so someone has to grab it and lift it up and turn it right side up. So creating work is just easy. I throw the garbage in the garbage can, but I throw it a certain way so I could go back and look and see if anyone had been in my garbage. Uh, and one thing that I started doing a while back ago is uh, if I'm throwing like documents out, like bank statements, whatever, I shred it first. It's mm-hmm. sort of this kind of my info security. Absolutely. Anything that you can do to kind of wipe the identity of who's living in the home, 
you know, you asked me, is there a certain time of day that people, um, people get burglarized or have home invasions? Well, most of your crime rates go up after the holidays because everybody throws all their garbage out with their TVs and their iPads and their laptop boxes in the front yard. You know, those things you want to cut up and you want to maybe wait a couple of days to throw them out, throw them out, you know, maybe half one week and the other half the other week. The reason why people go through garbage is look for receipts to see if there's any high value items that you might have purchased. And there's a lot of information that now people can shop from their own home. People put so much stuff on social media. I'm sure you've heard this story before, uh, but it's going to happen to somebody again. I had a friend that goes to Vegas. He won $30,000 in Vegas, took pictures of the $30,000. The next day, his house was broken into and guess what was taken? What was it, $30,000? (laughs) $30,000 in the same envelope that he showed it on Facebook. You know, um, you really do have to watch what you put on social media because as people flash through profiles and they see something flashy, it'll draw attention to it. You know, um, so you want to manage what you're putting on social media just as much as what you're throwing outside. We live in a society now that if you buy a new car, you go out and take all these pictures in front of it and show it to all your friends, but also your non-friends are seeing it too. Right. I guess we just don't think about it when we get through the excitement of bought a brand new diamond ring for your wife and you take a picture of it in your home and you forgot you took the picture in front of your house, which had the address. Okay. Yeah. So people just aren't thinking about celebrations and you know, I'm happy. I laugh. I, I live. I celebrate with my friends. You just try not to let anybody outside that close friend network see what you're doing. Yeah. And related to that, um, you know, just being mindful of what you post on social media, like another tip I've heard is like, don't post while you're on vacation. Cause you're basically just saying, Hey, I'm away from my house <laughs> yes. and you can rob me. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, every one of your friends has had somebody sneak in through another friend into their network. By liking them, they get to see things about you and learn things about you that you probably don't want anybody else to know. People post when they're sick, when they're in the hospital, when they're on vacation, when they're traveling out of town, how long they're going to be out of the country. And, you know, those are great for your friends to know, but not everybody on social media is your friend. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's another like thing to think about, uh, being mindful of what you're posting on social media as a preventative measure. All right. So we, we've talked about some things we can deter and hopefully reduce the risk of being a target for a home invasion. But we also have to have a plan for if that home invasion still happens. So I know the plan is going to be different for every house, for every family, because every house, every family is different. But like roughly speaking, like what does a, a plan for a home invasion look like? You know, a couple of years ago, we... um started looking at everybody's program for active shooter because that's what you almost have to look at for a home invasion as an active shooter situation. A person enters your residence with a weapon with the intent to kill, find you, locate you, keep you as a hostage. And we believe that you should follow a a, a certain model. So the first thing is we, we want you to have a plan of an escape. You should have an escape route for every room in your home. And this escape route needs to be within the reality of the world that you live in, which means if you are 250 pounds and your escape route is a two by four window, that's five feet above the air ground that you can't get to, that's probably not a logical escape route. 
that your escape routes need to be practiced. And every escape route has to get the answers to three basic questions. Can I get out of the room that I'm in? How do I get out of the room that I'm in? And where do I go once I'm out of the room that I'm in? So you have to have an assembly point. With the kids, it's easy to play hide and seek. You just, um, I would get the kids scattered throughout the house. I'd sit them down and I'd say, listen, there might come a time that you have to leave the house because uh, bad people came in the house. And you're going to have to listen to your mom or I. If we were to say it's time to go, I want you to know what that means. That the youngest grabs the next one, the youngest, and you're going to get out of the house. If you're in the bedroom, this is how you get out of the window. If you're in the living room, this is how you get out of the the back door. And you never want to have an escape route as the way you came into a room. So it should always be another way out. Now, that's just a rule of thumb. Let's face it. If you're in a bedroom, you have the bedroom door, but you may have some windows. And you're going to have to teach the kids to open up the windows. We wouldn't recommend you break the windows because not only does it cause more alarm to where you are, it also creates other dangers trying to climb out of a window with broken shards of glass. But you should have escape routes. And this is where knowing your neighbors play an important role. One of the persons I talked to when I was writing the book is that they had a home invasion and two of the teenagers ran out the back of the door. One went left, one went right. The one that went left jumped into a um, family that had a dog and got bit up pretty bad. And the ones that went right ended up being safe. So you'd want to know where to go when you got out of your home. For me, when we get out of our house, we go to a big tree that's located in the corner of the yard so we can still see who's coming in and out of the house. So all the family members, when you escape, are going to go to one place to get accountability in the perfect world. In the reality, they're all going to go to the wind and you have to trust them that they're going to go to a neighbor's house. They know how to call the cops. They know what to say. Um, That should be all part of that escape route is knowing how to get out of that room. If you can't escape and you have to pick a place to hide, you have to kind of ask yourself this general question. So every place to hide has a criteria. Um, Can you see danger coming? Can you escape from danger? And can you defend from that position? If you can't answer yes to those three questions, then you only really pick the place you're going to die. You didn't pick the place you're going to go to survive. So you have to be able to escape from it, see danger coming, and defend from that position. If you can't find a safe place to go that fits that criteria, you're probably safer to create the illusion that you're not in the room. Um, What I mean by that is take a a single-level home, three bedrooms and opposite sides of the house. if a person comes into your home and they're trying to get, get you, there's two or three people with them. They're trying to find all the family members as quick as possible. They're going to run into rooms very quickly. They're going to look into common places where people could be if they don't see them in the room. Look in the closets. They're going to look behind the door. They're going to look under the bed. They're going to look in the laundry basket. So if you wanted to create the illusion that you were gone, you would maybe open the window, break that window, and then hide in a place That is not one of those three or four places that we mentioned. So as they come into the room, they look and they see the window broken. They'll probably look at the window and you've created the illusion that you left the room. That is probably a little bit safer than just hiding in the closet or underneath the bed. So we first want you to escape. If you can't escape, then you're going to have to pick your engagement points. And this is pretty scary for others. You know, um, just because I have a firearm, I've been in combat before. I I teach people about firearms, how to survive real-world threats. 
it doesn't mean I want to have them. Uh, you want to try to avoid them. So if you don't have weapons, you're going to have to pick weapons of opportunity that you have in your home. If you're going to pick to defend because you can't escape, you can't go to a safe place, then your only other option is to barricade and defend. So it's escape, barricade, and defend is the philosophy. And when you pick this place to go in your house and if you have no weapons, weapons have a criteria. If I'm going to pick a weapon to defend myself, the first question I want to ask is, does this weapon give me what distance from the threat does this weapon allow me the opportunity to protect myself? So if I have a knife, I got to get closer. If I have a stick, I can be farther. But if I have an aerosol can with a, with a lighter, I can get a little bit farther. So what is the distance from the threat? Uh, number two, how much effort do I have to use to put into using this weapon? You know, we've all seen the, the movies, the horror movies where there's noise outside the man goes in the home, stands at the front door, and he's got slippers in his hand. You know, what are you really going to do with a pair of slippers? Um, but also, you have to pick a weapon that's not going to take all your energy and effort to use it. So if I had my choice between a bat, which does give me greater distance, or something sharp, which slashing and puncturing takes less effort, I would more likely probably pick the, um, the object that's sharp rather than the bat. So... What distance do I have? And then what kind of effort do I have to put into it? And then the third question to ask is, what are you really trying to do? You're trying to blind them, cripple them, bludgeon them, knock them out, make them unconscious? Or are you going to have to take a life? Because the opposite of saving a life sometimes is taking one. And are you ready to do that? Are you emotionally prepared for that? Are you mentally conditioned for that? Can you physically see yourself going through that? You know, I can't tell you how many times I, I ask this question around the country when we teach our active shooter program. I'd say, how many of you, if there was a kid on the floor, whether you know him or not, and there's a person standing in front of you, and you're both on the floor, that uh, you would throw yourself over that child to keep them safe and let that person shoot you versus them? I raise my hand because I'm included too. But I always ask them, what if you could create a location that you engage the shooter at the door in a small, narrow hallway? in the stairwell, if you can pick the engagement point, now you went from 100% surely dying to maybe you now you have a 50-50 chance of survival. So if you can't escape and you can't barricade, get into a location, you can see danger, defend from danger, escape from danger, and you're going to pick your defense points, you're going to have to engage the threat. And you're going to have to pick weapons that are going to allow you to engage safely. So small, narrow hallways are going to be a better place to engage them. Don't let them come in the room. Get them at the door. So you're going to have to go through your home, identify these safe places to go, and then also identify your engagement points. And you pick the term of, of engaging on your terms. Are you truly going to put a plan together to keep yourself safe, or are you just going to hope for the best? And hope is great, but... I'd rather have some training behind my hope than just blind faith. Well, in regards to firearms, yeah, you said earlier that a lot of people buy a firearm because it makes them, it's like a security blanket, makes them feel safe. But you said if you don't train, the firearm can actually become a liability, become even more dangerous. So, I mean, how do you, if you decide to have a firearm for home security, how do you recommend folks train so they're actually prepared for home invasion? Well, you know, there's a lot of good people out there that do firearm safety. And I think first you have to make the emotional commitment with yourself and your family. So 
you know, being a Marine, I've always had weapons in my home, but I've never had an accidental discharge. My kids didn't play cops and robbers and point guns at everybody. There's a certain level of responsibility that they have to be taught at a young age to respect the firearm and respect life. So you have to make that commitment as a family. If you're going to bring the gun in the home, first have the emotional commitment and understanding that you're going to have to learn the things to keep you safe. And then when I made that decision, you know, I looked at different ballistics and we settled with the nine millimeter for a variety of reasons, penetration, ballistics, recoil, the amount of rounds you can get in a magazine. But more importantly, you know, there's a lot of different technology out now. And so, you know, I use frangible ammo in my home. So if you get into a gunfight in the living room, the gun, the bullet doesn't travel three bedrooms down. You have to teach the kids to get very low in the home. Uh, you have to do some practice and training that if, you know, my wife's in the kitchen with the firearm and we're all getting out of the house, how do we move towards her location and get as low as we can? So anything that she has to engage is going to be above her waist and we're all going to be moving towards her below the waist. So there is some training and planning and the emotional commitment. And then you have to go through the firearm safety training. You know, nothing replaces trigger time. You know, there's airsoft, there's a whole bunch of safe ways of doing training in the home. But you know, I see people that say they carry firearms, but yet when I go over and visit them, it's locked up in their bedroom. Doesn't really do them no good if they're taking a nap in the living room and something happens. So if you, once you make the commitment to have a weapon in the home, now you're gonna have to make the commitment and training to where you're going to place the weapon. And if I'm going to have a weapon in the home, it's going to be in a lockbox. It's going to be close by. It's going to be easily accessible. Wife's going to know the, the password. Kids are going to know the password. My kids are going to know how to safely handle a weapon in case I'm involved in a physical altercation and I tell them to go get the gun. You want to create a plan. This can't just be, I have a gun in my home, so my home is safe. You make the emotional commitment. You do the preparation of safety and training. You do the first aid training for handling gunshots because, you know, if you're in a gunfight, someone's going to get shot. You want to be able to render aid to yourself at least. And you have to go to the range. You know, and I think if you're going to the range and you're engaging in threats, eight to 18 feet is probably good for home defense. Anything over 18 feet, probably no need to really engage it unless you have to. And in a gunfight in your home, you're not hunting the threat. You're letting the threat come to you. So by knowing the engagement points and knowing where drywall you can shoot from and doors of a hollow core, or they solid, those are all knowing the lay of the land is going to give you the best opportunities for survival if you do end up using a firearm in your home for protection. Uh, I, I remember I talked to one firearms instructor because, you know, he's big on, you know, you have to train the way you are preparing for it, like the way reality mm-hmm. is going to be. And so one thing he did, like, like once, like every now and then, like a week, he tell his wife, I want you to set an alarm randomly during the night. Like, it doesn't, I, don't, I, know, I don't know what night it's going to be. I don't know what, what time it's going to be. And I'm going to, he basically practiced dry fire, like getting, getting used to like getting woken up in the middle of the night and like getting to your firearm. And I, I thought about that. I was like, yeah, if that happened to me, I don't know how I would do like the first time someone broke into my house and I had to like find a fire. I don't know if I'd do very well if I didn't practice that. No, you do have to practice because, you know, when you're scared, a variety of impulses take over. And if you're not programming your mind on what impulses you need to filter, it just delays your response. And you really want to respond, not react in these situations. So you are going to have to train because when you're scared, you're going to freeze. And that's the worst thing you can do when you're preparing to protect your own life is to freeze. 
All right. So we've talked about deterring criminals. We talked about what to do in the events. You're going to basically do sort of like um, a plan for uh, active shooter situations, have a plan for escaping, have a plan for hiding, and have a plan for engaging the, the, the criminal, fighting back if you have to. If you're going to do firearms, make sure you get training, make sure you practice. One thing I thought was interesting in your book is you talk about what, what happens after home invasion? Because I feel like a lot of self-defense books, blogs, whatever, they never talk about after, after the event. But you have a whole section on that. Why do you think that was necessary to talk about? Well, you know, um, my home invasion happened when I was 14. And there are certain things that, I, that happened to me during the day that I still can go back to that feeling. And the emotional scars of of uh, whether it's PTSD, whether it's emotional stress, whether it's, you know, abuse, whatever the emotional trauma that you have felt over your, in your life, you're going to always have it unless you address it. And I can't think of a, the most scariest thing is a person to have their home invaded. I mean, you know, most people will move from their location within six months of having their house broken into if they live in apartments. They just don't want to be, they can't sleep in that house anymore. Someone's been in their home, been on their bed, moved their sheets, ate their food. They feel violated. So I wanted to make sure that people knew that, you know, you have to emotionally protect yourself just as much as you have to do physically. That means you need to get to small groups, family counseling, find a a pastor that will sit and listen. Most of them do a great job with that. There's other peer groups that you can get involved in. But to just chalk this up that it's no big deal, that's that's just crazy. You'll you'll never move past it. It'll affect relationships. Your trust factor goes way low because everyone you think you talk to you think is lying to you. It'll affect your your relationships with your family, with your kids, with your jobs. It'll change your personality. So I wanted to make sure that if anyone was surviving something like that. I had nobody to talk to except the kids in the street. We just talked about how we'd find these people and beat them up if we ever did. But you know, I'm, I'm 57 now and I still think about it when I was 14. So I wanted people to know they have to go get help. They have to talk to people that will listen. There's professional help out there. You know, unfortunately, I don't think we do as good a job as we should for big organizations that experience active shooter these people are going to be traumatized. And if you're a survivor, it just means you physically kept yourself alive during that moment. Now you have a whole bunch of years of horror you're going to have to address and, and focus on. I wanted to make sure people knew that they had to identify with it first with themselves, come to the acceptance that there was nothing they could have done to maybe prevent it. Now that it's over, they survived it. They should be giving themselves thumbs up. And now saying, I can do this. I can survive this. I will survive. But if they don't believe it in their heart, it can just tear them up and and, and ruin them. I've seen good people physically survive bad situations and have been emotionally scarred for their entire life. And besides the emotional trauma of of the the attack, another people people forget about is after the home invasion happens, the state's going to prosecute this person and you're going to be involved in that. So it might be months or years that you're still dealing with this in some sort of way. Yeah, there was um, one case we interviewed that a guy was found and he was found with six driver's license in his possession in the car that he had. Him and another person broke into six other homes. It didn't go to court until like five years later. 
you know, criminally, they were adjudicated pretty quickly. But then the civil cases came in and the lawsuits came in and, you know, civil lawsuits can last 7, 10, 15 years. So even though you might have survived it on July 1st, you're going to be having dreams and recollections of what's happening and having to tell your story over and over again for the next three to five years. So you have to take that time to really come to terms with it that, you know, you did the best you could and you should pat yourself on the back, but people choose not to pat themselves on the back and they act like it don't matter and they get worse. Well, Dave, uh, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your, the rest of your work you do? Well, you know, we, the company I founded for the non-escalation de-escalation is called Vistalar. That's www.vistelar, vistelar.com. We have several books on managing conflict. We cover everything from words to weapons in our training. You know, the last five years, we probably expanded our training outside of law enforcement, military, police to education, healthcare, the hospitality industry, customer service. We're seeing more and more verbal altercations escalate into physical violence. So we're trying to do our best to help people manage themselves emotionally, represent themselves physically, and keep themselves safe mentally and emotionally. So you know they can get a hold of me at the website, or you can just write me at dyoung at visalar.com, and I'll be glad to answer any questions that they have. Fantastic. Well, Dave Young, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Brett. My guest today was Dave Young. He's the author of the book, How to Defend Your Family and Home. It's available on Amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his company's website, vistelar.com. That's V-I-S-T-E-L-A-R.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash homeinvasion, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you could think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.